an agricultural empire, the fulfillment of the dreams of pioneers, unexcelled in beauty, rich in achievement, and still offering a challenge mighty as the mountains. This is our Northwest Empire. I'm Felix Bennell, resident historian for Cairo Radio, heard with Dave Ross Wednesdays and Fridays on Seattle's Morning News. On this episode of the Resident Historian Podcast, an author and illustrator finds big secret Seattle history in the little details. You know, we're not anywhere fancy, we're not at some tourist destination, but it's like a tiny brick museum. And then, from the archives, our 2016 45th anniversary look back at D.B. Cooper. But first, let's go all over the map. In the nation's northwest corner is Washington. Our resident historian, Felix Bunnell, joins us Friday mornings for All Over the Map, a quick look at the stories behind the names of local places and things. And this week, a new search is underway at the spot along the Columbia River where money from hijacker D.B. Cooper turned up 41 years ago. Felix, I can't wait morning. to hear about this. Yeah, morning, Aaron. This, this November 24th will mark the 50th anniversary of that infamous hijacking of a Portland to Seattle Northwest Airlines Boeing 727 jetliner. I'll be doing a series of stories as we get closer to the actual anniversary, which, as it was in 1971, it's Thanksgiving Eve this year as well, which is kind of exciting. Um, but I want to get a bit of a jump on things, and we'll get to the search news in a moment. Now, of course, that crime was never solved. D.B. Cooper, whoever he was, was never identified. In Seattle, he released the passengers for $200,000 and four parachutes and then left in that same jetliner, headed south with just the flight crew and one flight attendant on board. He then opened up the rear stairs, which only the 727 had, and parachuted from 10,000 feet somewhere over southwest Washington. Now, D.B. Cooper nowadays, he's in the realm of UFOs and Sasquatch in terms of being an iconic, if felonious, piece of Northwest mythology. In February 1980, this is nine years after the hijacking, right, a kid named Brian Ingram was digging in the sand along the Columbia River near Vancouver, Washington. And there in the riverbank, he found about $6,000 of the 200000 in cash that Cooper had been given in Seattle. Now, the discovery of the cash was front-page news, and it certainly was very exciting for the 11-year-old Felix, I have to admit. <laughs> but none of the other Cooper dollars had ever been found in circulation, leading to the speculation that Cooper didn't survive the jump. The FBI believed the money had likely floated there sometime after the hijacking, washed up on the shore, and then gradually been covered with sand. The discovery in that spot also forced a rethinking of where Cooper, dead or alive, and the cash were believed to have landed on that windy, stormy night back in November of 71. Now, it was originally thought he landed in an area drained by the Lewis River, and that's where the search was concentrated in the days following the hijacking. However, because the cash was found in the Columbia River at a spot upriver from where the Lewis River enters the Columbia, this meant that Cooper perhaps landed in an area drained by the Washougal River. That's farther east than was originally thought and might explain why they found nothing when they did the search in 1971. So that's a pretty important point that was brought up by this, this cache at this spot in 1980. Now, it's news again right now because a D.B. Cooper historian named Eric Euless, he began a multi-week effort to excavate that site along the Columbia to try and find Cooper's parachute and briefcase. He doesn't think there's any cache there, but he thinks those other clues might be buried there. I spoke to Eric Euless uh, this week, and he says Cooper landed nearby and intentionally buried those items in the cache, and that Cooper intended to probably come back later and get the money. Still doesn't explain why the money has never been in circulation, but anyway, Euless lives in Phoenix. He'll be traveling up here to dig in that spot, which is on private land, for a total of about eight days between now and October. Now, the location where the money was found is called Tina Bar. It's a long sandbar in the river that was a popular local fishing spot for decades. It's not a public park, and the landowner in the past was fairly permissive about anybody fishing there, 
but it's now off limits. But Eric Euless has permission to be there. Now, I personally don't have time to search for D.B. Cooper, but there is another mystery I'm trying to solve, and that's the origin of the name Tina Barr. I've also huh. seen it in print as Tina's Bar with a possessive apostrophe S. It's spelled T-E-N-A apostrophe S. Okay. Now, but I also, you know, I've been told that the name might be attached to a previous landowner, but coincidentally, perhaps, it's in Chinook jargon, which that's the trading language spoken in the Northwest among different indigenous groups and European traders starting back in the 19th century. The word tenas, T-E-N-A-S, with no apostrophe, is either a noun for child or an adjective little or small. So my crackpot theory is that the D.B. Cooper money spot is actually tenas bar, but I'm hoping someone hears or reads the story and confirms my theory or refutes it. So we have some great pictures of Eric Euless searching for the uh, briefcase and the parachutes down there along the river at Tenass Bar, and we'll have much more to come this autumn. It's, it's a story that will never die if, if all goes according to plan. Fascinating. Uh, Felix, let me ask you real quick. Is there any – are you more of a history generalist, or is there a concentration or a story that just grabs you? You know, you said there was a D.B. Cooper historian – uh, yeah. <laughs> if, if you could, if you could narrow it down, what what avenue would you take? You know, I do so many stories about aviation and people who survive aviation disasters. As weird as that may sound, yeah. but the, the stories of survival are so inspiring. I can't get enough of talking to people who survive terrible things. I find it really inspiring to hear their stories. So, DB Cooper has an aviation angle. Obviously, that Boeing seven two seven was built in Renton. He took uh-huh. off from Portland, landed in Seattle. It's such a perfectly Northwest story about a criminal, of course. But that's Unsolved mysteries, like anybody, I love unsolved mysteries. Sure. And I hope the D.B. Cooper mystery is never solved, but it would be cool if they found something down there along Tenass Bar. That is our resident historian, Felix Bennell. Thank you so much, Felix. Have a great weekend. You too. Thanks, Aaron. Bricks, sidewalk stamps, old fire hydrants. Most of us walk past these things every day without pausing to take a closer look or even give them a second thought. But a new book just out from a popular local Instagrammer who I happen to love is all about examining these smaller and often overlooked aspects of Seattle history. And who better to tell us about it than our resident historian, Felix Bennell. Felix is brought to you by Lake Washington Windows and Doors. Good morning, Felix. Good morning, Aaron. Yeah, so this new book is called Secret Seattle. It's one of the most interesting local history books that I've seen in years. I think it's going to be a big hit this holiday season. The author is Susanna Ryan. Uh, She grew up in Shoreline, moved to Seattle a decade ago, and even before the pandemic, she likes to go for long walks through different neighborhoods and just observe. She's also an illustrator, and in 2017, she started posting her drawings of Seattle neighborhoods on Instagram, That led to a book two years ago called Seattle Walk Report, which is more of a contemporary look at neighborhoods. Now, this new book, Secret Seattle, it's just been released. It's quirky, but if you like noticing stuff and learning the stories behind the little things that most people overlook, this book will speak to you. Uh, You can sort of thumb through it in any order and read these little short sections about particular things you can see if you take the time to look down. For instance, if you're ever on a stretch of sidewalk and you see barely readable letters embossed into the concrete, like I did when I went for a walk with author Susanna Ryan on Beacon Hill a few days ago. It's probably a sidewalk stamp from some long-gone construction company. It's like a little business card. It's a, it's a job well done, you know. I paved this whole sidewalk and now I'm stamping my name in it. So it's just cool to see the little patchwork of cement there. Some, you know, sidewalk paver a hundred years ago just dunked their thing in there and had no idea that we'd be standing here admiring it, you know, over a hundred years later. 
Yeah, and the name we saw was N.D. Johnson, not a household word by any stretch of the imagination, and it wasn't a name Susanna was familiar with. But in the research she's done on other names, she says most of the sidewalk stamps in Seattle date to around 1900 to 1910. And that makes sense. That early part of the 20th century is when the residential neighborhoods in Seattle we know today were really starting to take shape. So it isn't just a name in the sidewalk. It is a little clue about history. Now, a few blocks from that N.D. Johnson sidewalk stamp is a parking strip that somebody has partially paved with old bricks. And many old bricks have the manufacturer's name clearly visible on them. Uh, Susanna pointed out one that said Claiborne, which was made near Spokane. There's a familiar local brick that said Denny Renton, and one I'd never seen before that just says Ballard, which it turns out was made in a brick factory near what's now Carkeek Park. Susanna Ryan really likes old bricks. I could write an entire book about bricks, you know, and do all the research and stuff. It's just amazing. And I think the thing that really appeals to me about this is that it's just right here on a random street. You know, we're not anywhere fancy. We're not at some tourist destination, but it's like a tiny brick museum uh, right here. And that sort of history that you can see right before your eyes feels so much different than reading about it in a history book or having someone tell you, oh, yeah, the Denny party came and blah, 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 blah. It's kind of like it's like it's living and it's here. And somehow, some way, these bricks have survived all these years to end up on this random Beacon Hill street, you know. So the section about bricks and secret Seattle goes into detail about the history and the context. This isn't just some almanac of esoteric facts. There's cool origin stories about the designers and manufacturers that really trace the history of the region. You know, that Denny Renton brick plant in Taylor in South King County could produce a quarter million bricks a day. That's more than any other place in the U.S. And now everything is illustrated with Susanna Ryan's black and white line drawings that I think capture this moment in the 21st century better than photographs. I've learned that a lot of people who have kind of a more like cartoony, less realistic um, drawing style can also draw very realistically. And I cannot. I cannot shade for the life of me. I could never draw the bowl of fruit in art class the way that they wanted me to. You know, I've always just had this particular kind of style and it's been really refined over the years, but it's just... I don't know. In some ways, I feel like it's like the style of the best fifth grader in the class or something, (laughs) like, because it is very kind of like, it's not quite right, but it also gets the point across well enough, you know. (laughs) And our walking tour continued on past the brick garden and down the hill to one of Susanna Ryan's favorite fire hydrants. Yes, that's what I said, her favorite (laughs) fire hydrant in the whole city. Now, I like to think of myself as a pretty good observer of gritty details and bits and pieces of old infrastructure, but even cynical old me was taken aback by this particular specimen. And I'm no architect. Yeah. And it seems like it has kind of a, uh, I don't know, a fluted um, neoclassical kind of Greek <laughs> revival. There's more going on with this, with those fluted sides. Yeah. It almost looks like a monument. I mean, if, if it was ten times bigger, you would think it was a monument to the history of fire hydrants. Definitely, yeah. It is kind of, it almost feels like a caricature of a fire hydrant. Or like if you looked up fire hydrant in the dictionary, that would be the picture. It's like your quintessential kind of fire hydrant there. But... Yeah, I, I, I just love it. And, and what I really like about Susanna's approach is her attention to details that would be mundane were it not for her curiosity and imagination and her talent as an artist. You know, where most people might not even notice a particular fire hydrant, she sees a whole universe of backstory, slightly twisted humanity, and even some good old-fashioned Seattle process. To think about how for everything you see in Seattle, there was all sorts of mundane meetings and memos and people discussing the merits of like this fire hydrant over that fire hydrant or whatever it happens to be. It's just funny to think about. We kind of take it for granted, all these little things on our streets and don't really realize the bureaucratic nightmare that brought them to be, you know. (laughs) 
You know, and it's a cliche these days to say that Seattle is changing or vanishing. You know, and it, it, it is, definitely. But that's been true since 1851. And I say thank goodness, because the way more the city changes, the more interesting it becomes. That's a whole other story. But I asked Susanna Ryan how she would feel if she went to visit that cool old fire hydrant one day and it was gone. I know that nothing is forever. And I know that fire hydrants aren't the defining thing that makes a city worth living or whatever. I think I would be a little bit... Um, sad at kind of how unceremonious it was not like i think we need to all like have a party to celebrate the end of the life of this fire hydrant or anything but just kind of (laughs) you know it's just a little tiny change and like something i would notice i don't know if anybody else would notice but stuff like this is so much the little details are so much of what make up a city and people's experiences in their neighborhoods and stuff yeah, so I just, I really like her approach because it's, yeah. it takes these things that people just don't notice for the most part and kind of weaves it all together into a great story. And unlike a history book that you have to read from the beginning to the end to understand, you can just turn the pages and go to whatever section interests you. Um, the book's called Secret Seattle. It's an illustrated guide to the city's offbeat and overlooked history. Um, Susanna Ryan will be signing copies of her book and an exhibition of her artwork at Fantagraphics Books in Georgetown. That's this Saturday evening, and I think the display is up through the end of the month. But I think this is going to be the sleeper hit of the holiday season for people looking to give gifts to people who either live in Seattle and care about it or people from far away who have some connection to the city. Yeah, I am a, I am a fan of Susanna Ryan's. I've been following Seattle Walk Report uh, on Instagram for, oh, you have? for, okay. yeah, for, for a couple of years now, I think. Uh, and it's absolutely wonderful on the, on these long walks she'll go on. She'll she'll catalog. It, it's it is. It's very quirky and and funny, but also informative. And uh, yeah, it's it's. I just think uh, uh, absolutely great way to get to know uh, your neighborhood in the area or or any of that stuff. It's. I'm excited to see the book. You'll never look at a fire hydrant the same no, way, again. sir. No, you will not. That is our resident historian Felix Bennell. Uh, good talking to you, Felix. Thanks so much. Thanks, Aaron. For this is Cairo, where modern adventure and intrigue unfold against a backdrop of antiquity. For this edition of From the Archives, it's been almost 50 years since the D.B. Cooper skyjacking. This is how we mark the 45th anniversary back in 2016. D.B. Cooper, won't you please come back? We're looking for your high and low. Cause leaving ain't light in the middle of the night. You might know the name D.B. Cooper, and we're going to take a look back with Felix Spinell. It's the uh, 45th, uh, what do you call it, an anniversary when it's a notorious person, or is it a mark of 45 years since this happened? I don't think we celebrate the anniversary. Maybe we observe the anniversary, (laughs) because it was a crime. This began as a big Pacific Northwest story, but it's been known worldwide for decades. It's, It's like a legend, even before the Internet, back before the Internet, if you can imagine there was a time before the Internet. Back in the 70s and 80s, we would talk about this. It was like a tradition, especially in the Northwest, but really it's known around the world. So many details, but let's get the basics down. It was Flight 305 from Portland to Seattle around 3 o'clock, about a half-hour flight. Very stormy day, Thanksgiving Eve, Northwest Airlines. Uh, 727, made by Boeing. Uh, 37 passengers, a crew, about five, I think there's six people in the crew. So the passengers know nothing about what's going on. But right after it takes off from Portland, a man hands a note to a stewardess, and it's okay to call it a stewardess. Not a flight attendant. It was actually a stewardess. Back then, yes, stewardess. Yeah. stewardess. So the note says he has a bomb, and he wants $200,000 and four parachutes. He wants that money all in $20 bills, and he'll trade that for the passengers when they get to Seattle. So they get to Seattle, and they circle for about two hours, and they don't tell the passengers what's going on. So one of the passengers is a guy named Larry Feingold. He's a Garfield graduate. At this point, he's 28 years old. He's a lawyer working for the U.S. Attorney's Office in Seattle, seated in row six, right behind first class. He's sitting there. The plane finally lands at SeaTac around 545, 
And a man comes on the plane, and, and Larry Feingold recognizes it. It's an FBI agent coming down the aisle from the front of the cabin. And I said, John, what are you doing on the plane? And that's when I first learned, because he said, Larry, there's a skyjacker on the plane, and just we're going to get you off the plane in a couple minutes. And then he walks back, because I think there was then an exchange. He was bringing on the money and the parachutes. You know, being a Northwest native, to talk to an actual passenger from the D.B. Cooper plane, for me, it was like talking to a Titanic survivor. I know, was, when you I was said he's chills. a Garfield graduate, oh, I was so excited was to do this. Yeah, yeah. Kids, get into journalism. It's really fun. If you're curious about something, you can talk to all these people about different things. Front it's row very, seat yeah, to life. Great. Anyway, so all the passengers get off the plane. Coopers, they go to the main terminal on a bus. It's a media circus there. SeaTac's a much smaller place in those days. It's like a little small town airport. D.B. Cooper has his money in his parachutes. The 727's refueled. It takes off again around 740 and heads south into the stormy darkness. Cooper tells him to go slowly as possible, keep the landing gear down and the cabin not pressurized, fly at about 10,000 feet, and head toward Mexico. And so they do that. And somewhere around Woodland, just down, down on southwest Washington, down around east of I-5, Cooper lowers the aft stairs. 727's the only plane that has this door that opens like a staircase, and you can walk out the back. And they see a light go on. The crew's up in the cockpit. They see a light go on saying that the stair's gone down. And that's where they think he jumped, somewhere, somewhere around that part of Washington. So 15 years ago, uh, Bill Cooper, no relation, at KPAM in Portland, he interviewed the lead agent in the case, a guy named Ralph Himmelsbach. And this is Ralph Himmelsbach describing the conditions that Cooper jumped out into. The outside air temperature was 7 degrees below zero. He was wearing a plain business suit, a black raincoat. He was wearing slip-on loafers. You can imagine what happened to those shoes on his feet as he uh, fell off that bottom step of the air stair door at 170 knots. So they, they launched a massive search. They never found him. There have been plenty of people who have come forward and claimed to be D.B. Cooper or to know who D.B. Cooper was. So all, all have been disproved. Just earlier this year, the FBI officially closed the case, and they sent all the goodies, including Cooper's clip-on black J.C. Penny tie, which he left behind in the plane. That's all in D.C. now, in one of those uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark warehouses. You can't get to oh, it I'd anymore. I'd love to see that. So that passenger, Larry Feingold, he doesn't exactly see Cooper as a hero. I've never quite seen him in the same light as people who you know, think, well, he's sort of a modern-day uh, Billy the Kid or Robin Hood or something. On the other hand... You know, other than being a great story to tell people when you're uh, having dinner, it really doesn't impact me much anymore. Yeah, and you know, that music we played coming into this piece, it's called D.B. Cooper, Where Are You? I spoke very late last night with the artist who recorded it, a guy named Tom Bresh. He was living in Seattle in the late 60s and the early 70s, now calls Nashville home. But he said, I asked him, he said it's been about 20 or 30 years since he played that song, but I, I asked him to sing a few bars for us. <laughs> Well, D.B. Cooper was a traveling man. He rode on a Northwest flight. <laughs> he asked for some money in $20 notes, and he just dropped clean out of sight. Anyway, to D.B. Cooper, won't you please come back? We're looking for you high and low. With your pleasant smile on your dropout style. D.B. Cooper, where did you go? Hey, Gene, Mr. Cooper, Mr. D.B. Cooper. <laughs> oh, God. It was so much fun. I mean, they played some radio station playing it twice an hour. It's got one of those voices. Yeah, it's so deeply ingrained in the pop culture here, yes. the whole D.B. Cooper legend. I love it. I love that there's a song about it. Anytime there's a song about something, I'll, I'll make a story out of it. Whole story and a bunch of photos at MyNorthwest.com. You know, there were theories that D.B. Cooper was related to the aviation industry, maybe a disgruntled Boeing employee who'd been 
fired in the big layoffs in the late 60s. Do you want the mystery to be solved? Or no, do you no, like I don't. Because I feel my personal feeling is it's like he's not. I don't think I'm a hero. I think he's like uh, Paul Bunyan or the Sasquatch. It's like regardless of the facts, it's part of the legend. I think people will be talking about this 200 years from now sure. on Seattle's Morning News. I'm Felix Bunnell at Cairo Radio in Seattle. Follow me on Twitter and read my stories and see my photo galleries at MyNorthwest.com. And please join me again for the next episode of The Resident Historian. Things are swinging in Seattle.